Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Welcome back to another episode of the Mile 40 podcast. I know we had the last week off. It was Father's Day, got to spend some time with the family, and I'm glad that we are back on track. Today's guest is a special guest because today's guest was referred to me by a fan of the Mile 40 community. And for me personally, it's really cool to see the buildup with regards to the interest in the stories and the narratives that we brought on board to the Mile 40 podcast thus far. And today's guest truly syncs with the messaging that we've been trying to put out there, talking about those pit to peak moments in life and discussing how we've navigated from those pits all the way to seeing our full potential throughout those peaks. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you all to Cheyenne Reynolds. Cheyenne is an athletic trainer at Clemson University. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course, it's my pleasure. So Cheyenne, we got to catch up a little bit the other day and you told me a little bit about your story and your story covers a lot of ground. And one of the things that kind of kicks off your narrative is that you moved pretty far away to start off your life. And it wasn't, I was going to say you moved across the continent and then I had to correct myself in thought uh, because you moved even uh, further than that. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little about your childhood and that and, and we'll go from there. Yeah. So, you know, I was born in Ithaca, New York, kind of a small town that's got Cornell University in it. And I lived there until my parents got divorced. And a few years after they split, we had the opportunity to kind of have a little bit of a say in what parent we wanted to live with. I lived with my mom for a little while. And then I chose to move to Fairbanks, Alaska to live with my dad. And so I spent a lot of time there going to school and loving it, but it was uh, way different than living in New York for sure. How old were you when you moved to Alaska? Gosh, when we moved there, I think I was 11. What do you think is the number one misconception people have when they find out that you grew up in Alaska? So everybody thinks that you live in an igloo and you take a dog team to school um, and that you, you know, see grizzly bears everywhere you go, moose. It's funny, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Egyptian and, and similarly, uh, you know, people presume that, you know, riding camels to work, sand everywhere. Um, and so complete opposite of Alaska climate wise, but um, definitely have, have heard those similar, you know, similar thoughts previously. Did you think that, you know, given your experience living uh, somewhere like that, that maybe your perspective was shaped a little bit differently with regards to how you approach day to day. And obviously, you know what it's like, you know, being on the East Coast, your mom being in New York. Can you talk a little bit about some of the just differences in the overall characteristics of society within the two different places? Yeah, you know, in some ways, Alaska is a lot slower than other places that I've lived and not, you know, in a bad way, it's just different. And so in Alaska, my dad was the town vet. 
And um, he didn't really see patients. He just had his own little clinic. We mostly took care of our own dogs. And um, I can't tell you how many times people would stop over because they got a fishing hook stuck in their hand and they needed it to be cut out and stitched up or somebody needed something late at night for an animal or their son or daughter. We just kind of had a a really close-knit community. Um, And I can remember my dad saying that if you saw somebody pulled over on the side of the road, you always stopped to see if they were okay because you might be the last person to pass them for hours, maybe even days, depending on where you are in Alaska. And I have learned the hard way. That's not necessarily how it works everywhere else. You certainly don't pull over for a random car you see on the side of the road. (laughs) Definitely don't do that in New York. No, Um, no, that's cool. That's very cool. Um, Have you been to Alaska recently at all? Yeah. So I went back usually the football season and somewhere around December, January, and usually we get about a week off. Um, So I went back in January this year and I'm getting ready to go back in July. So I'm excited. Are there any staples with regards to life in Alaska? Like when you get back there, you're like, I can't wait to go here. I can't wait to do that. Yeah. So, you know, aside from seeing my family, the the kind of the best part about going in July is that it's summer. So they just have their summer solstice. And so in Alaska, it's light all the time, especially in the summer. And so we get kind of the flip of that dark in the winter all the time, light in the summer. It's so much fun to just sort of lose track of time, kind of be outside all the time. It's sort of like the reward for making it through a cold, long winter. That's awesome. And I know that you had also mentioned to me um, in our previous conversation that, um, you know, you took up sports when you were younger. um, And I Mm -hmm. I had asked foolishly how football season worked in Alaska. And then you corrected me and reminded me that I was in the the summertime when when the light was out. What sports did you partake in when you were down there? When I was in um, high school, I did uh, cross country, softball, uh, and then cheerleading. Got it. Was one of them in particular a top sport for you? You know, I think my favorite out of all of them was softball. I was definitely not good enough to play in college by any means, but I think I enjoyed softball the most. And I I know that you had pursued cheerleading a little bit further. You know, I want to talk about that a little bit. How many years did you cheerlead? You know, not that many. I took up cheerleading kind of late in my career. I think the first year I did it, I was a senior in high school. So really kind of stumbled upon it. It was just something I was like, Oh, this seems like fun. I'll try it my last year in high school. Um, and then ended up doing it in college. So ended up working out just for the audience. Where did you go to college? I went to Springfield college, uh, which is in Springfield, Massachusetts. Got it. So New York to Alaska to Massachusetts and how far is Springfield outside of Boston? Approximately. Oh gosh, you're testing my geography. Uh, maybe an hour and a half, two hours. I'm not okay. sure. Close enough that we went on the weekends, but far enough you couldn't make a quick little trip. Got it. Okay, so you you had you were used to the suburban lifestyle for pretty much your entire life to that point. You weren't in you know any major cities at that point. You know, I, I want to dive in a little bit with regards to uh, your experience cheerleading in college. I know that was part of you know your inflection point. Um, and so if you can walk us through how things started off from a cheerleading perspective and then where things went from there. I had emailed the cheerleading coach at the university before, I guess the summer before I was a freshman um, and asked about tryouts. You know, we were a small school, D3 school, so didn't have a lot of resources. And the cheer team practiced three times a week at night, like eight to 10 at night. Um, so we had tryouts the first week I was there. Um, I made the team and the deal was that you did everything. So you did competition, basketball and football. So 
you know, you could, there were some kind of, you could rotate through whatever you liked the best, but the idea was that everybody had to practice year round. So I started off my freshman year, had a, you know, really good season. I did football and basketball. And then I guess I made it about, I made it through the football season, my sophomore year. Um, and that's sort of where my career ended. Got it. And so let's, let's dive right in because I know, um, that, you know, when, when listeners, you know, peek into your experience and, and what went down there, um, I think it'll be eye-opening for a lot of people because a good population of podcast listeners have had athletic um, backgrounds and experiences. Um, in fact, um, the last person I had on the podcast was a collegiate football player who then went on to play arena football. And so a lot of them understand the ups and downs uh, of you know, the athletic world. Um, but you had a pretty unique experience that I feel could draw parallels to a lot of people and some of the, the pits that they may face, excuse me, in their personal lives. And so let's talk about what happened in, in December of 2010. Yeah. So, um, in December I was, so I, I started college a little bit early. I didn't turn 18 until my freshman year of college. So I was almost 19, not quite. I was 18, Um, we had, we must've just finished up the football season and we were getting ready for basketball and competition season. Um, and we were doing a new stunt, um, at least new to me, new to us. Um, and it sort of involved three different layers of a pyramid. Um, and I was a middle layer. Um, and when we started off, we were not very good at it. Um, and so one of the times it was late at night, we fell, um, and, the girl that was on the top layer came down and her, her foot hit my chest. So I sort of had some immediate pain, you know, was not feeling good. Thought maybe remember I was an athletic training student at the time. I had very minimal knowledge. So I thought maybe I had cracked a rib or maybe I had, you know, given myself a little intercostal strain or something. I wasn't really sure, but I I didn't feel good. Um, and so I was done practicing for the day. We had maybe half an hour left. I kind of pulled myself out. I was like, I'm not feeling good. I'm just going to go home. So practice ended. I went home. Um, and I woke up the next morning and I was really not feeling good. I had a lot of tightness in my chest and felt like I couldn't really take a deep breath in. So I went to our student health center. I did a little walk-in visit. Um, and as soon as I got there, you know, one of the first things they do is try and check your vitals. Well, they couldn't find a pulse in my left arm. So they were freaking out and I was freaking out because they were freaking out. And I knew enough to know that wasn't good, but I didn't know enough to know what the heck that could mean. Um, So I actually got sent to the local hospital there um, where they started doing a more complex workup. Um, And they, the first thing they did was a CT scan. Uh, They did a bunch of blood work. Um, And then they came in and they told me that they weren't quite sure what was going on, but it looked like when the girl had come down and sort of hit me in the chest, my clavicle, right? So my collarbone had subluxed posteriorly, right? So meaning that it had gone backwards far enough that it had stressed that joint and squished everything that's behind it. So if you look at the anatomy that's behind that on the left side, it's not good, right? You got your heart and everything above it. So it had sort of squished my subclavian artery. Now, in a normal person, if you go backwards and squish your subclavian artery with that amount of force, you're going to rupture it and you're probably going to bleed out pretty fast. I should have bled out pretty fast. It should have ruptured and I should have probably died within a few minutes on that gym floor. 
Um, but it didn't. And so they were trying to figure out why, what had happened. And so when they looked at my scans, I had a really big thickening of my subclavian artery right in that area, right? And so that's the artery that's going to supply my left arm with blood. So it's probably why I didn't have a pulse in that arm. And it's also going to, you know, connect later on, right, to the carotid artery it goes up to your brain. So they were trying to figure out what was going on. And they were started looking at just that small area where I had the trauma. I had this big sort of blood clot in my chest. Um, they thought that maybe somehow it was related to that incidence and I was really lucky. Well, when they started looking at the rest of the CT scan, they noticed that I had these really big thickenings in other arteries as well. So my ascending aorta, right, that comes off the top of my heart, the de descending aorta that comes off the bottom, and then one of the arteries that goes down into your uh, abdomen. And so that couldn't have been related to trauma. So they were, you know, looking at other things like my blood work and stuff like that. So they ended up diagnosing me with... Uh, um, autoimmune disease, which is called Takayasu's arteritis, which most people never heard of. I've yeah, never can heard I, of it. Can, I'm going to pause you right there. Can you spell that for the, for the audience? I, I can. So it's T-A-K-A-Y-A-S-U-S and it's arteritis. So it's like an arterial inflammation. Got it. And, and you, you're very well-spoken now. And you know, I just want to ask you, as all this was happening, did you understand everything that they were telling you? Because, you know, oh, I, I, absolutely not. Okay. Just, <laughs> just, just want to make sure because I'm sure a lot of people are going to hear and you're doing a very good job in terms of breaking it down in layman's terms right now. But I can only imagine that when this original diagnosis was coming through, your head must have been spinning. It was, it was. And I'm extremely thankful that I had my mom there advocating for me. You know, she drove through the night from New York to be with me in Massachusetts. Um, and I mean, I'll thank her for everything that's happened since then, because, you know, and again, you know, nobody knows at the time, but the surgeon that had first looked at me, their, you know, initial feeling was, well, God, we got to fix this blood clot in her chest and they were going to go in and do surgery immediately. Um, and she's the one that was like, well, what are, what, what's all these other things going on in the scans? I want to send these down to Johns Hopkins. I want to know what's going on before we just decide to, you know, do surgery in her chest near her heart. The doctors at Johns Hopkins are actually the ones that ended up diagnosing me with Takayasu's. And you ended up waiting a couple of years before, before surgery. I did. I had to wait. So that was December of 2010. I didn't have surgery until May of 2013, right after I graduated college. And so what was going on, you know, up here during those two years? Yeah. So it was, it was really hard. You know, it, when you see something that's wrong and you know, something's wrong, you immediately want to fix it. Right. And so that waiting game is probably one of the most difficult things because in your mind, you just immediately want to start that process of being better. You're ready to move past it. You just want to get to the finish line, move on with your life. Right. And that wasn't something I was able to do immediately. And at the time, I didn't know it was going to be two and a half years. You know, at the time I was like, yes, two months, I got it. This is going to be great. Or I'll just make it till the summer and I'll do surgery over the summer. You know, it was always one more month, one more month. It was every time I had blood work taken and every time they checked on me, it was maybe soon, maybe next time I see them, they'll say yes. And so two and a half years was originally two months. Was there like a certain part of life that maybe, you know, you were a little bit more anxious about, like, for instance, you know, 
I can't really see my career through until I get this resolved, or I can't really, you know, be in a committed relationship until this gets resolved, or I can't pursue this dream, et cetera. Was there anything perhaps that you were putting on hold throughout that period? Or was, was it, I'm going to try to live my life as normally as possible? You know, I would love to say that I tried to live my life as normally as possible. And I'm sure to some degree that I did. But for me, there were two things that were really hard, you know, and so because I didn't have a normal blood supply to my left arm, I had a bum left arm, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot I couldn't do. It was really hard to lift my arm above my head. So to do anything in that respect, which is hard when you're supposed to be an athletic trainer, and you're supposed to be helping people that are hurt. Um, I wasn't really able to do much in that sense. I had to get exemptions from classes because I couldn't do um, some of the therapeutic exercise classes. They had to make exceptions for me. Um, and, and that was hard, but to be honest, the hardest part was, um, the physical appearance, you know? So for me, um, because it was an autoimmune disease, my blood markers were all over the place. And I had inflammation in my body that they said had to be calmed down before they would do surgery. And so, you know, anybody in the medical world knows how do you calm inflammation down when nothing else is working, stick them on a really high dose of prednisone. Um, so for me, I was on the highest dose of prednisone you can be on for years, for a really, really long time. How did that impact your body? So they call it a moon face, right? So you get this sort of typical, um, prednisone or steroid looking, uh, yeah, so are, you pu- are you putting on weight? Yeah. So your face started, looks round and fat and squishy. Um, your eyes look sunken in, you get kind of a fat midsection and skinny little arms and legs. And I mean, you look ill, you look really ill and unfit and just not healthy. So you are approximately like 20 years old at this time. Mm-hmm. 20. Kind of, so. I was 19, 20, 21. Yeah. So you're kind of in your prime college years as, as you were going through this, how did yeah. it impact your social life or did it impact your social life? You know, I was really fortunate to have some amazing friends at the time. And some of them I knew ahead of time and some of them I met throughout this. Um, And it's always hard, you know, looking back to pictures and stuff during that time. I'm like, oh my gosh, I really look like that. Um, But when I was going through it, I really felt like that. And I really felt like, oh gosh, my appearance is changing so much. And what are people going to think? And, you know, not everybody knew what was going on in my life. And so just imagining what people were thinking about you not knowing what was going on was really hard. How would you describe your own personal relationship with hardship? Meaning, you know, I'm sure this was, well, based on our story, this is probably the hardest thing that you went through. But had you gone through other hardships, you know, maybe when you were a child that helped you navigate this, you know, whether it was just kind of approaching your mindset, or whether it was kind of just calming you and kind of giving you this sense of one day it will be okay? Or was it a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt, you know, during that period? You know, I think it, in the beginning, it was a lot of uncertainty and doubt. And, you know, with within this time, it was really me learning a lot about the disease and what life was going to be like and sort of coming to terms with the fact that this was probably always going to be something I was going to deal with. And it might not always be this intense, but you know, the more I learned about autoimmune diseases, the more I learned that they fluctuate, you might be in remission and then not and feeling good and then not and sort of how to balance that with everything that's going on and figure out how to lead a normal life around that. Um, and so every time it kind of ebbs and flows, you sort of have to reset yourself and think about, okay, 
this is what it was like last time. How am I going to make it better this time now that I know what to expect? Is it one of those situations where, you know, you can maybe take one step forward and then two steps back? Or is it one of those situations where it's like incremental small wins, for instance, to get you to a larger goal? So, you know, it's honestly both, right? And so it's a lot of really small incremental things, right? So some prednisone for a really long time, and that really slowly helped me get to where I wanted to be to have surgery. But I'm gonna be honest, I thought that everything was gonna be great when I had surgery. I was like, yes, this is the last thing I'm gonna need. I'm gonna be off all the medicine. I'm just gonna be a normal person after that. And I was for like maybe two months. And, you know, then all my numbers shot back up and they were really concerned that I had just had this major surgery um, and that the disease was going to attack it. So they jacked me back up on the steroids. And for me, that was the hardest time because the first time around, I didn't really know what to expect. I was like, yeah, my parents are going to change a little bit. It's going to be a little hard. Now I knew. Now I knew exactly what was going to happen. I had just moved down to North Carolina, started my first job with people I didn't know, didn't know me, had no idea what was going on. And here I am preparing to start this all over again. And what what was your job at the time? I was an intern athletic trainer at Western Carolina University. Got it. So new surroundings, new environment, new people. Did you have any familiar faces or, you know, what, what brought you to West Carolina? Just the job. You know, I had I had none. Yeah, I um, thought that maybe I would want to do something in uh, college football. And uh, one of my professors knew somebody that had worked at Western Carolina. Told me about the job opening. They were looking for interns, and so I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know really what I was getting myself into job wise. So I had to find new doctors down there. I had to find you know place to live and start a new job. And it was my first job as an athletic trainer where I really sort of found out what it was like. And you were doing a lot of this on your own, this navigating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had an amazing support system and they're awesome, but they were in New York and Alaska. Yeah. You know, you had, you had told me that, you know, it was those two years that were your toughest. Um, mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. You know, let's talk about the mindset throughout those two years. Was it, is this ever going to end kind of mindset? You know, what was going through your mind? Yeah, it did. It felt a little bit like that. It felt like, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's ever going to get any better, right? It's like, I thought one thing was going to happen and then another did. And for me, I think the biggest thing was feeling like I was out of control. Like I didn't have control over my body. And to me, that was one of the hardest things, you know, because it was something so simple as like, I just don't want to take this medicine every day. I don't want to be tied down to doing this. And it was, you know, so intense of the fact that, you know, anybody out there's ever taken prednisone before, especially in those high doses, if you miss a dose, you feel awful. And you don't just feel awful, you start to go through withdrawal and it's cortisol withdrawal. It's like drug withdrawal. It's really, really intense and you can't function. So you're really, really beholden to a schedule and taking things when you have to. And for my job, when I was traveling and stuff, it was like, you had to really be on it all the time and you couldn't mess up. And I was also taking you know, um, autoimmune medication that suppressed my immune system. And I went through many different ones and some of them were infusions in the hospital. And so I had to miss work to go do that. And the drugs had to be refrigerated and I had to pack little ice packs everywhere I went. And 
you know, so for me, that was the hardest thing is feeling like I was either a burden to my coworkers or feeling just like I didn't have control over something so simple in my life. What should people know about um, the community of folks with an autoimmune disease? You know, what did you feel most maybe misunderstood for? You know, I think part of it for me was that it was invisible. You know, like there's a lot of a whole host of autoimmune diseases um, and they all look different and people react to them different all the time. And so for me, it's just sort of like, you never know what somebody's going through, right? And you never know how one disease is going to affect somebody more than somebody else. And so I've never met anybody else with this disease. It's very rare. And so to me, I would just tell people that even what I've just learned in life doing this job is that you really never know what somebody else is going through or kind of how this disease affects them. Just because it affected you one way doesn't mean that other people aren't going through it in a completely different way. I mean, you segued that perfectly into where I was going with this with regards to, you know, how has this now shaped your perspective? You know, I think a lot of times when people uh, are facing these kind of pits, um, especially when they face the lonelier parts of those experiences, um, it really shapes perspective around how they, you know, move forward with life when they see, see other people kind of going through things or maybe just not having a good day. It kind of shapes that perspective around, hey, I don't really know what this person is going through, you know, outside of, you know, these, you know, moments that I'm in front of them. Would you say that was one of your your bigger perspective shifts or was there anything else that maybe you want to highlight? No, you know, I think that for sure was. And I, it took me a while to realize that, right? So I sort of, I went through this whole thing and I was like, oh yeah, I'm a better person for going through this. And this is a great experience. I'm going to use it as a learning tool, right? And then I, I, I got to Clemson University and I worked with 135 young men every day. And I still catch myself all the time having to take a step back, you know, and I get humbled every day in this job. You know, I'll think that somebody is just lazy or not showing up on time because they don't care or not putting in the extra hours because they're not dedicated. And then come to find out that their mom is undergoing cancer treatment or they have a sister that's really sick back home and they're going home every weekend or they're they're struggling with their parents or they're having something really difficult going on. And so for me, it's just taking that step back and realizing that you wished other people had empathy for you when they knew nothing about your situation. You know, you have to take a step back and have that for other people too and maybe engage them in a conversation and find out why they are acting that way. Was there any element to your experience throughout those couple of years that has maybe driven like a personal purpose or, you know, an ambition of yours and, and kind of going with through what you went through where now it's kind of become, you know, not as, but I don't want to go, you know, the extreme and say it's your life mission, but was there any part of it that was like, now that I've been through this, like, I want to do this, whether it's like, you know, help people going through you know, a similar situation or just use the experience to one way or another propel others? Yeah. So for me, the biggest thing, and I credit my mom with this, is that I felt like in the beginning, this could have gone a completely different way if I didn't have her advocating for me. And so for me, the most important part of my job is I wear a lot of different hats at work and I do a lot of different things, but the most important part of my job to me is being an advocate. And so 
I'm so thankful for my mom for advocating for me for, you know, an outside opinion for better care or to just take a step back and make sure this is really the right decision and and an informed decision. I'm so thankful that the doctors took the time to explain to me what was going on, exactly what they were going to do and what it was going to be like afterwards. And so I try and every day in my life do a good job of explaining to athletes what their injury is and what that looks like and what what's it going to be like afterwards and especially part of our job is to accompany them to doctor's appointments and things like that. And just making sure that nobody talks above them or that people explain and give them the time of day and they have a chance to ask questions and just really sort of, I pride myself on being able to be an advocate for them, even if that just means because I have a little bit more medical knowledge than they do, but making sure that their voices are really heard when they have a doctor's appointment or a medical issue. No, it's an incredibly important role because especially when you think about some of the athletes that that you work with in some capacity on a social lens you know they're bigger than the world around them and then mm-hmm. this is probably as serious as it gets when it comes to uh, a scenario that they're in and the truth of the matter is that as big as they may be on the social lens and it doesn't just go for them it goes for a lot of people out there myself included you could put them in these situations and they don't really understand what's going on. You know, I, right. I, I joke around all the time that, you know, I, I had leukemia as a child. I saw tons of doctors, but 90% of the time I had no idea what they were saying to me. Um, and I always needed that person in my life. It was my dad. And, you know, I, I joke around that my younger sister understands way more than I ever did about my own diagnosis. And, you know, I could speak to the fact that having those people in your life who can advocate for you, who can break things down for you, it goes a long way and it really humanizes your relationship with others where it kind of levels the playing field where it's like, yeah, like I I may be really good at doing all these things, but when it comes to like my body, when it comes to um, something that's really, really important, I rely on my advocate. Um, and you are that for uh, a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, I, I'm sure that listeners out there want to learn about how you got to your current role right now. So let's talk mm-hmm. about Western Carolina, uh, how things finished off there, and then how you went on to Clemson. Yeah, so I, I actually bounced around a little bit in my career. Um, I finished up my internship at Western Carolina. Um, and then I went to grad school at Clemson, um, and I got there at an excellent time. I got there just as they made their first appearance to the college football playoffs. And I had football that first year. Uh, I worked with volleyball my second year there, which was awesome. And then I finished up with my master's degree and it worked out perfect timing. Western Carolina was hiring for a full-time position. And so I went back to Western Carolina. I had softball and volleyball there. Uh, worked there for almost two years. And then Clemson had a spot back open uh, with their football team. So I've been back here at Clemson since 2019 working with a football team. That's awesome. And as far as you knew at that point, I I think you had told me that, you know, it it wasn't that big of a deal for you, but I'm sure now that you know the college football landscape, you know, there's a lot of people who are probably listening to this podcast thinking, 
I don't know anything about athletic training, but that's probably got to be the coolest job in the world. <laughs> uh, so um, well, let's talk about some of some of your highlights. And then I want to dive into um, you had shared with me that, you know, a part of your role um, is working around the mental health um, aspect of it with some of some of the athletes out there. Um, so mm-hmm. let's talk about first a couple highlights. Um, I know that you had some pretty cool plane rides you had mentioned to me. Uh, but is there anything that kind of stands out in particular that you want to share? You know, everybody probably thinks that like the highlights are you winning national champions and championships and stuff like that, which don't get me wrong. That was absolutely incredible. And, and that was amazing. But as an athletic trainer, you don't really feel so much like you contributed to that particularly for me. It's every time I see somebody who had a debilitating injury or a season ending injury come back. So that first day that they're back at practice, not, not even on the, the field on Saturday at a game, it's that first day that they get to go back to practice after something like that. And they're so excited and you know that you help them get there or you help them prepare for that. That for me is my favorite part of the job. That's awesome. And I know you had also told me that there's also the aspect of it where you need to intermediate between doctors, players, coaches, et cetera. Can you speak a little mm-hmm. bit to that with regards to your role and and kind of speaking to some, well, not, I don't think intimidating is the right way, but you know, they're higher level decision makers that you need to mm-hmm. be assertive with, assertive with, and also mindful of the fact that your job goes outside the locker room in the sense that you work for an organization or for a school that that's heavily covered by the media. Yeah. So you know, the, the more successful a team is kind of the more they grow and the more staff we have. And we're super fortunate to have a giant staff at Clemson. And with that comes a lot of people who have different jobs and interact with players in different ways. And so, you know, for us, um, kind of on the daily and especially if a player is injured, there's a whole multitude of people who they may interact with and who may need to know what's going on with them. And so, you know, we've got strength and conditioning coaches, we've got nutritionists, We've got their actual coach. We've got the head coach, their position coach, their offensive or defensive coordinator. We've got their academic, you know, supervisor. And so there's all these different areas of things where we need to let something, somebody know what's going on with them, what their limitations may be. And, you know, nobody ever wants to hear that somebody can't do something or that they're injured. And so then sometimes they, they call us the grim reaper, right? So you're the bearer of bad news nine times out of 10. It's a lot of responsibility. Uh, but someone's got to do it. Um, and you know, I think in a way your own personal experience probably helps you articulate that news when necessary. Um, I think Mm -hmm. that when you've been put in a position where you've had to hear bad news on more than one occasion, as it pertains to yourself, it helps you position it in a way for others, not only eloquently, but also I think there's a piece to it where, you say things in a way that if you were on the other side, you would want to hear it that way. So that's also a consideration. Um, I, I know I had mentioned, I wanted to ask you about the mental health aspect of your responsibilities. If you could elaborate a little bit on that, just to kind of give the audience some insight, you know, they may think as an athletic trainer that might not come up, but right. you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a holistic aspect to it. There is absolutely, you know, and especially kind of with stuff that's been going on the last few years in college athletics and the way things are changing, it's a huge part. Um, And I can't by any means take credit for even 
a tiny fraction of what we do uh, for mental health. We have a giant team and we're sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, a liaison, right? So we're sort of the people that are on the ground every day dealing with the athletes. And so it's up to us to refer, notice when something is not necessarily right or sort of encourage an athlete maybe to seek some other help if we think necessary. And so we're very fortunate in that we have a large staff of sports psychologists and clinical psychologists um, and all sorts of people who are at our fingertips really to help the athletes if they have any sort of issue come up. Right. And so that's everything from performance on the field that may be, uh, you know, influenced by previous injury or something going on outside of here to some really pretty serious mental health issues. And some of that is related to sport and some of it has absolutely nothing to do with sport and might just be heightened by the fact that they're an athlete that's in the spotlight and feel like maybe they can't express that or feel like they don't want to share that information. It's very private. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I think a, it's very commendable, but B it's also, um, just really reassuring to know that folks in, in your shoes out there, um, take on, take on that role in that capacity. Uh, because I think it's just ever so necessary now more than often, more than ever before. And, um, mm-hmm. It's good to see universities moving in, in that direction. Um, yeah. Before we we close things out, um, want to make sure that you know we we address everything holistically. Are you still currently taking any medication um, for for your own diagnosis, and and what's that like now on a day to day basis? I am, yeah. So I've been really fortunate that I've been doing really well the last few years. I was able to taper off the prednisone a few years ago. Uh, which you have to do really slowly so your body learns to make cortisol again. Um, so I still take um, an autoimmune drug that basically suppresses my immune system so that my body still doesn't attack kind of that repair graft that I had in my chest. Uh, so I take a, a injection once every other week. And that's fortunately all I have to take right now. And hopefully maybe in the near future, I can be off of it completely. That's awesome. How would you know? At what point do they do, are they able to tell um, if you can wean off? Yeah, so it's a very difficult balancing act, right? And so I've sort of already started to wean off a little bit. Um, I started getting IV infusions of it. And then I went to the auto-inject pens and the, the injections were once a week. And now they're one, you know, then I went to every 10 days and now I'm at, every, you know, every 14 days. So it's a really big process. And the idea is you slowly wean off, get your body used to it and have blood work at all those intervals in between to make sure that your markers aren't creeping back up. You have to go extremely slowly though, because oftentimes with these medications, if you taper off and you start to do poorly, just hiking up the dose of this is not enough. So you'd often have to go back on a prednisone or some other sort of supportive medicine as well. So I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that. Amazing. We're, we're all behind you here. Do you have a like lifetime susceptibility? Um, you know, probably a little bit, uh, as long as I'm on an autoimmune, um, suppressing medication, I'm always going to be that much more susceptible to any disease or sickness or anything like that. So I am immune compromised. I have to be pretty conscious of that everywhere I go. Um, I don't have many side effects from the surgery. I have a checkup every two years. They make sure my heart's still working good. But other than that, I'm pretty fortunate. 
being immunocompromised, you bring up something that are a word that a lot of people have heard a lot, especially since COVID started. And so I guess I want to ask you if you had any piece of guidance for people out there who are, who's, who are in that position or who have to deal with just being highly susceptible to um, a loss, a you know, disease, um, whatever it may be. Like mindset. I mean, now you've kind of been dealing this for a couple with a cup for a couple of years, eight years now, mm-hmm. nine years. Let's talk about the mind shift there. You know, from where you were then to where you are now, and given the stage that you're in, you yeah. know, if there's anything you could share to help people kind of shape that mindset. Yeah. So for me, uh, the the kind of the biggest mindset shift for me happened in 2020 with COVID, right? And so my whole job essentially is being an advocate for other people and looking out for other people's health and making sure they stay on the field and sort of being in the background. Um, And then we had all these really hard decisions to make with vaccines once those were available. And I, you know, had to work outside covering a football practice where people weren't masked. And in the beginning, nobody was vaccinated. And then in the end, you know, obviously we had people that weren't vaccinated. Um, And so for me, it was really really hard to put myself first. You know, I didn't want to be that person that had to have accommodations made for them. And, you know, what I would just say is that your health is valued above all else. Right. And so at the end of the day, you have to do what's right for yourself. And so for me, it was talking to my boss and my coworkers about, Hey, I don't feel comfortable doing this specific thing because I'm immune compromised or I need this precaution taken for me, or I would like extra PPE, um, which they were fantastic. And the university and the sports medicine staff did everything I asked and more. And so for me, it was really feeling supported and all of that, that let me feel like it was okay to put myself first and okay to, say no to things because they were more unsafe for me than they were for other people. And the risks might be higher for myself than they were for somebody else. That's amazing. No, and that that's right. I mean, I think that you definitely can't undermine the importance of that. And I think during the last two years, probably more than ever, th- there was probably this isolated feeling um, when it came to living normal life, resuming normal life, and I'm, and even when I say resuming normal life, it's probably not back to normal. It's more like just resuming what you can of normal life in, in the doses that you can, when you can, where you can. Um, and so I, I can only imagine, you know, what that must have been like in, in your shoes. You know, I think you did a really good job covering everything I had. Are there any last words or any last thoughts that maybe something that you wanted to touch on today or any person in particular who was impactful to you that, you know, you want to shine a light on, you know, I want to make sure that I give you the floor before we close things out. (laughs) You know, for me, I think the biggest thing, it just comes back to advocacy for me. And so I'm extremely thankful for my mom. You know, I, I don't really think I even realized until she told me recently how close I really was to having surgery that first night and how differently things could have gone if she hadn't sort of said, no, I'm not okay with that. You know, you need to wait until I get there and until we can figure out what's going on and I'll forever be thankful for her, um, in that situation. And so to me, it's just made me feel that much more responsibility to be that for other people, to give them a choice, you know, especially in the world that I live in so often, it's just assumed that we want to do the thing that gets them back out there the fastest or the thing that returns them to normal the fastest. But 
that's not your body. It's not your choice. Right. And so to me, it's really making sure they're completely educated on what's happening and what their choices are, because it's not always presented as a choice, but it's always a choice. Um, So for me, that's the biggest thing I think I've learned is to be extremely thankful for the advocacy that I had and to just try and infuse that into my job every day. I love that. Cheyenne, thank you so much for taking the time out today. It was a pleasure having you here. Thank you for being an extension and now a member of the Mile 40 community. Um, I am sure there's lots to learn here. So I just want to say thanks again for joining. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 Podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family. And let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.